Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my guest today is Tiffany Sanders. Hey, Tiffany. Hi. How are you doing? I am doing great today. How about you? I'm doing good. You know, it's down in the 50s at night here, and it's we don't need the air conditioning today, so it's wonderful. <laughs> so I'm jealous now because we are nowhere near that in Florida. We are still sweating inside our houses with the air conditioning on. So, How much of the year is it like that in Florida? And what part of Florida? So I'm in uh, probably northeast Florida, kind of more towards the east coast, uh, mid-Florida. Uh, usually I say Gainesville, and everyone knows where that is. I'm probably about 40 minutes away from Gainesville. But we pretty much get maybe, if I'm being conservative, maybe a month of what we consider winter, but you probably would not consider <laughs> of that winter. Okay, so a month where you don't need AC. Right, exactly. How does that play into, I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but what is it like to be a sportswoman in a place that is so hot so much of the time? You have to drink lots of water. Mm. You have to continually expose yourself to the outdoors to prepare so that you stay accustomed to the heat and the humidity and you learn how to very strategically dress where you are cool, but you also have some protection from the biting insects. Those are great tips. I love the point you made about just staying acclimated. I feel like that is so important and sometimes hard to do, you know, if your job or, you know, whatever takes up your time keeps you indoors a lot of the time. Mm Got to keep up with that. So one thing that I actually do that is just a little helpful tip is when I go down and feed my cows in the morning, I purposely do not take the four-wheeler, partially to save fuel, obviously, but also because it's a nice walk, but also just to stay stay acclimated to the heat and to the uh, humidity. So Love that. How far of a walk is it to go feed your cows? Um, it's probably maybe almost half a mile. Wow, that's a good one. And yeah. do you ever, I have, there's horses out my office window in a pasture and I look at them often and think, wow, you guys are out there in it and I'm just sitting in here in this air conditioned box. I mean, are the cows kind of inspirational for you at some points about getting out in the weather? Absolutely. We we actually have chosen to raise Florida cracker cattle, which are especially accustomed to Florida climate. And so they just amaze me at how little they live off of and still are hat and, uh, fat and happy. Oh my gosh. I could go on a whole nother tangent about Florida cracker cattle and Piney Woods cows. I'm yes. very into the um, patch burn grazing, which I feel like is should be germane in Florida. Um, anyway. Okay. Can you tell us what's in your freezer? Well, it's getting a little scarce this time of year because bow season opens up on the 17th. Um, so I have a couple of gallons of duck breast left over, a couple of maybe four pounds of ground venison. But in honesty, I have more beef lung than anything since we just came through gator season. We kind of buy that in bulk. So there's actually more bait 
than food right now. (laughs) (laughs) That is a, okay, yeah, that's something I, we hear that from a lot of podcast guests. They have a good chunk of something that is a product of animals, but is not actually intended for food. Exactly. Can we explore this? Why would beef lung be the bait of choice for gators? It floats. Um, mm. We've all. You can also use deer lung, but it's just not quite as big. You get more out of beef lung, and it makes sense because it's kind of a, um, typically a discarded part. So it makes me feel good too that we're using something that would. You know, some people will buy it for dog food, but for the most part, it gets wasted. Yeah. So, but the key is, is that it rots quickly because we need it to be. We need it to rot within a couple of days in a bucket. And, um, but not too rotten and it floats. So that's the other key reason that you would use the lung because it floats on top of the water instead of sinking. Interesting. So you want it to be a little bit, a little bit rotten just Mm -hmm. for this like scent attraction. For For the scent. It is amazing to watch an alligator coming across a body of water and then the wind pick up just the right way. And the scent of that partially rotted beef lung hits them and the way they literally do an about face. It's amazing to watch, but they don't like it too rotten. They like it to have a little bit of, um, a little tang. A little substance to it. If it's just falling apart, they'll actually come up to it and be like, oh, that's too bad even for me and just leave. Interesting. Interesting. This talking about lungs reminds me of, um, I used to be, I was in the Peace Corps and part of what I did there was um, work with my community to grow meat rabbits. Mm-hmm. And we butchered a rabbit one day and we had the awful and I we I don't know we were hungry Peace Corps volunteers so we actually cooked up the lungs um just because I wanted to see what they would taste like and I don't know if you've ever put a lung on a skillet but it inflates because the air heats up (laughs) I can imagine (laughs) yeah and it's very interesting and this whole time that we're talking about (laughs) the whole time we're talking about beef lung I'm wondering like okay you need a big skillet but then that'd be something to see um Sorry, I was, yeah, I just had to get that out. So it strikes me that the thing that you described with um, watching alligators wind bait and come to it, you must be hunting on relatively large bodies of water. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there are so many different ways to hunt alligators in Florida, and actually baiting is just one form. Um, We use baiting in bodies of water where we cannot use... uh, our motors where we have to use trolling motors. So we're slower. Um, if we're on a body of water that we can use the motor, then a lot of times what we'll do is we'll just basically glass for them. My favorite time is in the morning and especially on a mucky lake so that the air bubbles will show easily. And we'll just basically run and gun up on them, wait to see bubbles where their trail is, and then kind of go after them from there. So there's a couple of different ways, but yet both places are fairly large that I, I typically frequent as far as gator hunting. Wow. What's your favorite way to prepare gator? Well, um, I love it as sausage. Fried is always a favorite, but we only eat fried food maybe once every four months. So um, made into a sausage makes it a little more. I'm all about making as many meals as possible. I am definitely an outdoors grocery shopper. <laughs> and um, so sausage form seems to stretch the furthest for sure oh man that sounds good alligator sausage sounds tasty <laughs> I had an, oh you mentioned duck breasts 
Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you are pretty into waterfowl hunting and I want to know more about what that looks like in Florida. Cause I've done some, I've done like early teal in Mississippi in places where there are alligators. Um, but I'm curious what it's like when it's like that. I imagine for the majority of the duck season. Right. So waterfowl hunting in Florida is very interesting. Obviously, we see nowhere near the numbers that you see in other states, other than sometimes if we have a really great early teal migration, um, sometimes we'll see high numbers, but still it, it still does. It dwarfs in comparison to ducks in other places. But um, you usually are competing with alligators on the waters that you're hunting. So we've lost quite a few ducks to alligators and, um, we've had, we've seen a few, this personally hasn't happened to me, but some bald eagles steal some, but, um, gators are definitely an, an issue. Now, one of the places that we love to hunt is a flooded cow pasture. And that's where we will be hunting early teal actually this upcoming weekend. Um, it's a little different because the water's only six, maybe eight inches because they're just planting these cow pastures and flooding them. And so that's really nice. It's a place you can actually work your dogs because most places in Florida, your duck dogs get no practice because you're definitely not going to let them get in the water. So finding a place like that is great, but it's a good five and a half hour drive for us. So there's definitely some sacrifice to uh, enjoy those benefits of hunting cow pasture like that. So do you have a duck dog? We do. We have two. We have a Chessie. Um, oh my goodness, my brain just went blank. So oh. we have a black. We have a black lab, and then we have. Why can I not remember what he is? You're gonna have to cut back in this. My little brown dog. I'm gonna guess it's a Boykin. Yes, thank you. <laughs> we have a Chessie Boykin mix. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's neat. And so he kind of has a softer face. You know how sometimes the Boykins can kind of have a sharp face to them. Mm-hmm. So the Chessie and him gives him a little bit sharper face, but also gives him a little bit more moodiness. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have a black lab as well. So Wow, that's really cool. So do you get to use them anywhere outside of like cattle ponds? We have one area that is kind of like a kind of like a flooded marsh that is a little too shallow for gators and there're just not a lot of big gators in there that when it rains a lot we can trust the dogs in that area because we're far enough away from the deeper water mm-hmm. but other than that that's about it interesting well it must take a lot of commitment to keep two duck dogs tuned up when you can't take them to a lot of the places practice every day we have to practice every day that's very that's admirable i'm guilty of not doing that um but goals so wow that was we covered a lot already because your freezer was interesting and then (laughs) where that led (laughs) us um let's back up a little bit and maybe you can just tell us a little bit about who you are Okay, so I am a wife and a mom. I'm actually a mom to four children. Two are married. One just graduated high school, so I just have one left. He's a sophomore. Um, My oldest child actually has already given me three grandchildren. They've had a child each year they've been married, so I told them it's we're good. We can (laughs) slow down now. I'm I'm sufficiently happy. So other than that, I'm the director of nursing for a nonprofit that mainly deals with assisting people in crisis situations. Um, And 
I love anything outdoors. Wow. Well, con- congratulations on your relatively large family. That sounds like a lot of fun to be a part of. It is. It's loud, but <laughs> loud, loud is fun. Yeah, loud and, fu- loud and fun, <laughs> happy. I feel like all of those things go together. Yeah. Um, so what got you started hunting or in the outdoors? How did you begin that journey? Yeah, so I am an, an adult onset hunter. Um, we had fished some in my family when I was younger, but um, I had a fairly large family and we weren't considered the wealthiest. So a lot of the extracurricular activities were limited to, you know, getting a chance to go swimming here and there at a, at a local pond. So when I met my husband, he and I were actually high school sweethearts. And he, his family, they were all avid hunters. So we started out pretty fast and furious having, you know, I had four children and basically the first five years I was married. And so I didn't get out a ton. I would get out here and there. And as soon as my youngest son was potty trained, I started being able to go out more. And really, my husband is one of those that was really great about taking me. I've, I've heard lots of horror stories from women about their husbands and their boyfriends didn't want them to go hunting. And this was a guy's thing. He loved for me to go with them. Now, I will tell you, he was never easy on me. I had to pull my weight. So I learned very quickly <laughs> the rules. And um, some people saw that as maybe a little bit cruel, but I'm actually, I'm, that's my personality. I want you to throw your worst at me and let me learn and adapt from there. So I basically followed his every footstep and learned. And then from there, I just started digging in. I watched every YouTube video, every podcast, you know, just read articles and collected things and tried to learn as fast as I could to make up for what I felt like was lost time. Wow. So what did you, I'm curious because I, I grew up hunting, so I I had early exposure and along the way I've primarily learned through experiences in, um, hunting partners or mentors. I haven't done a lot with, um, like online resources or, um, magazines or anything like that. Can you talk about what that was like, that experience? Well, it was, um, like being fed with a fire hydrant, but it's through a mesh screen. (laughs) It's everywhere. Yeah. A lot of information, but some of it very vague. It's all over the place. And, you know, I learned very quickly that you really had to learn the personality of who you were learning from, and that would help you decide what to glean from them. Um, But, it was a little daunting at first. Now, over time, it's like you develop a, I don't know, the nurse in me wants to say protocol, but you kind of develop a way that you e-scout or the way you dredge information online. And to be honest with you, my time in school and my, and my time gathering research as a nurse for writing research papers really helped a lot. I definitely use some of those skills as well, as well to figure out how to narrow down to the pertinent information, what was going to benefit me the most. Sure. Yeah. I feel like sometimes when I do go online or when I do see articles, 
a lot of it is opinion and conjecture. Mm -hmm. And so I, it can be hard to sort through, especially if you don't have um, the background context of, mm. you know, maybe a community or folks that you hear talking about it a lot. I mean, you obviously have your husband and I'm sure you all have other people that you hunt with. Um, but it can, I feel like it can be hard to really discern some of that on your own. Oh, and even still, I, I don't think, I think as the longer you hunt, the more you experience that. I mean, it's like Ford versus Chevys. I mean, <laughs> yeah. everyone has an opinion. So you have to kind of narrow it down. I like to try to narrow it down to things that seem like they are um, constants, mm -hmm. things that would exist regardless of the person presenting the information and try to kind of weed away the fluff and get down to the facts and the science and then and you know the, the constant the yeah. things that are kind of uh across the board yeah that's good i i've found too recent in recent years i feel like there are some um research labs like some universities that are doing a really good job of starting to push their work out in um oh what's the word I want to say popular media, but that's not the mm -hmm. word um, on social media, but also just, you know, in general, they're able to kind of break things down the research that they're doing into terms that are easy for hunters to digest and, and small chunks too. Right. Because right. You could, anybody can go find a research paper and read it, but that's a big time commitment. Yeah. Typically you have 15 or 20 minutes to look over something in the midst of your busy schedule. And it definitely helps if it's uh, portioned appropriately for that. For yeah. that. And that's something else that strikes me as you're talking. I mean, you said you kind of put things on hold until your youngest was potty trained, but mm -hmm. potty trained or not, four kids is a lot. Um, <clears throat> so you had to invest, you had to spend a lot of time and energy investing in gaining this knowledge. Mm. What made it so important to you to do that? Well, again, um, I did feel like I was behind, but that's kind of my personality. Um, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. I definitely have a little bit of type A. Um, it's, it's been worn down a little bit by life experiences to be something, you know, I think type A personalities can be positive or negative, just depending on, on your perspective. But I really, really had to grasp and just grab on to the things that were going to be the most impact, um, the most, <laughs> I want to say nutrient dense, even though <laughs> we're talking about information, because I did not have a lot of time, you know, I was catching moments in between children's naps and in between school and, and different things like that. So it was so important to me though, because I had not been raised that way. And especially as I became a nurse and started really understanding the relationship between food and our gut and our health and our mind, um, the outdoors as a um, remedy, as a treatment for anxiety that I struggle with became important to me. But also um, I struggled with some different health issues that were really tied to inflammation because of diet and stressors. And, and so eating as raw and... I don't really like to use the word organically because being a farmer, there's, there, there's a lot to that word. So raw and natural maybe would be the best terms as possible to try to alleviate inflammation in my diet was important and hunting and fishing 
even though we have a lot that's out there floating in the um, environment, it's still compared to what I was finding the way I had learned to grocery shop and to um, obtain food seemed like a better option. So I really became interested in that just as hunting and the outdoors as a, a total package to um, promoting health and wellness. So, yeah, the, the phrase, you know, wood, wood heating you twice, like once when you chop it and yes. once when you burn it <laughs> yeah. comes to mind as you talk about this. Um, I'm curious, do you use non-lead ammunition? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I figured. That's important, that's important to me. Yeah. <laughs> Was that? Well, especially when you, when you clean ducks and you find pellets, um, you, it, it's very sobering. You realize how important it is, this connection between the method for securing this, this wild game and are you contributing to, are you basically canceling out the very reason that you're adopting this hunting and outdoors lifestyle by the means that you're using to secure that food? I mean, it just, it seems, um, it seems like a no brainer to go non-toxic. So, yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm curious since you're, it sounds like your husband grew up hunting. Was that a transition that you had to influence or was he already in that camp when you met? No, I definitely influenced that. You know, my husband was raised, um, just everything was, you know, he ate a lot of fried food and, and, um, they farmed a certain way and they hunted a certain way. And so we've, we've butted heads on quite an occasion, both through in the outdoors. And that's very difficult because, Obviously, as far as experience in the outdoors, he possessed so much more knowledge mm-hmm. as far as hunting in the outdoors. So it was interesting to bring this this new information and say, okay, I, I get that you're more experienced in all this, but this is legitimate. Let's look at this and let's consider this. And so that's been not just in the outdoors, that's been a conversation, but even the way that we garden and farm, mm-hmm. we've there's been a big... Um, <laughs> an awakening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I feel like, you know, that's what marriage is, right? Yes. <laughs> One awakening after another. <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. We are going to take a quick break to hear from one of our partners. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. All right. I know. So we've talked a lot about um, kind of your journey and your background and what you're involved in now. And I wonder if you could tell us more about your role at Non-Typical Outdoorsman. Mm, yes. Yeah. So 
my role is the education and outreach coordinator. So I got connected with non-typical outdoorsmen because they were offering a deer hunt at St. Mark's National Wildlife uh, Refuge. And I'd never heard of them before. They were offering this hunt for free. I actually found them on Facebook and they just said, we just want some people that are somewhat experienced in hunting to come out and so we can meet each other. And so I went out and spent time with them and I was just really impressed with Eric Morris, who is the founder and what their mission is. And I fell in love with their mission because their mission is my mission. Because as a woman who possesses extra melanin um, and marrying into a family where there is no melanin, there have been some hurdles that I've had to overcome. And at the same time, it's kind of, I feel like it kind of has positioned me in between two worlds which for a long time felt like a struggle, but now it feels like a launching pad. It feels like, a, a, I don't know, like a, I feel like a, almost like a mediator between the two. And so when I met Eric and really, really felt like a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the outdoors, in the way that the legislature is, is, is weighted. Um, we just, we need more people to fall in love with the outdoors. And all of us know that your typical, uh, hunter is, you know, they're, they're dying, they're dying out and we are not replacing them in numbers enough to, um, tip the scales or the ballots in the correct direction to, to preserve these outdoor spaces that we love in this way of life. So to me, it just makes sense that if you're doing the same thing over and over again and you're this, there's no change. I mean, that's def the definition of insanity, right? <laughs> yes. So why don't we do something different? Why don't we really, really reach out to people that have never hunted and never even considered it? Um, and, not push our views on them, but befriend them and invite them and help them understand because it's help them understand our stance as outdoorsmen and women hunters, but also conservationists, because it's very difficult to convey how all that goes together hmm. in a conversation. But if you bring somebody with you and they see the care that you take, they see the way you watch the wildlife and, and the way that the wildlife moves your heart and how particular you are in even choosing which game that you harvest and even the sadness in you that even, you know, choosing to me, hunting is, uh, there's a tension there. It's an extension of husbandry and it's something that I, a tension that I walk in by raising animals for food, but the ability to love animals and, to use them as a source of sustenance at the same time and how that is all connected. So Eric is passionate about reaching, especially minorities and those that have never even considered hunting. And so the mission statement of non-typical outdoorsmen is basically it's a minority based and minority led hunting and conservation organization and their mission really is to create and promote outdoor diversity and inclusion 
but also be highly active in outdoor education, conservation, hunting and outreach, legislation, self-sufficiency, and to really, really mentor and be all about the long game so that you're enabling others to pursue opportunities in hunting in the outdoors and conservation career fields. So that's kind of what got me connected there. So I love it. I'm passionate about that. Um, I'm, I love introducing new people to the outdoors and helping them understand this delicate balance and this tension of loving the outdoors, using animals as sustenance, um, and also just being inclusive. To me, inclusive inclusivity is such an important thing, not just in the outdoors, but just the way I live my life in general. So, Wow, that was lovely. I noticed that um, your social media handle and maybe your email also says Lola of the South. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Lola is my grandmother name. Okay. Filipino for grandmother. And so it's, you know, that probably could have been a whole thing there. But whenever I really became passionate and started having more time, I wanted to be like that grandparent, Mm. even though maybe I'm not, yeah, I'm not old and wrinkly yet, but still (laughs) as a grandmother, I wanted to be like that grandparent figure that because I see that so often in my work in crisis work that, you know, many grandparents are kind of picking up the slack and to, and, and raising children and things like that. And so I kind of wanted to be like a grandmother in the outdoors and to be the one that was welcoming and open and, and, you know, willing to just take everyone along with me. And so that kind of really being, became important to me because, uh, Lola of the South is kind of like a contradiction because you have a Filipino grandmother of the South. I mean, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) That's you. I just, I love that, you know, that just kind of stuck. Wow. That was lovely. And I want to revisit a few parts. One of the things that really struck me was you talking about, you know, utilizing animals and what, and the tension, the tension Mm -hmm. there. And I feel like you know, that used to be something that as humans, we just, it was just part of life. It wasn't, it wasn't something that you could opt in or out of. Um, but in our society today, you can, or at least make yourself believe that you have <laughs> opted in or out. Correct. Um, Correct. So that it's interesting to me sometimes to, to think about how to convey that to folks that maybe. Absolutely. Th- well, it, the question comes up a lot. Um, I, I'm asked a lot how can you love animals so much and eat them? How can you love animals so much and teach your children to hunt them or, to, or to have them help you? And of course the word is always quote unquote, kill them. Um, and so usually, I mean, that never makes me angry because I, I actually welcome those types of conversations because I do want to understand where they're coming from, whoever's posing that question. And hopefully maybe I can help them understand where I'm coming from, even if we never end up agreeing completely. So, you know, the first question that I always ask is, are you a meat eater? Because if you're not a meat eater, there's a whole nother set of (laughs) follow-up questions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. About how, how good for the environment is eating soy products and tofu. I mean, there's a whole nother bag of worms that we could get into, Mm -hmm. but 
if someone tells me they do eat meat, then um, those are actually my my uh, most favorite conversations because I just get to talk to them about how as a meat eater and as someone who um, has to use meat as a protein source because I don't have vast amounts of field to grow enough beans. And even then, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. So meat protein is an important part of our diet that I really choose to embrace the ugly parts of that if I'm going to glean the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. So I, um, we, we raise cows, we raise um, Maishan pigs, we raise turkeys and guinea fowl and chickens for food. And I'm never not sad when it's time, when it's harvest day. Um, I, there's rarely a harvest day that I don't shed a tear, um, even as many times as I've done it because you can't help it. I've, I've, a lot of times I've either hatched these animals or watched them be born. I've raised them up. Um, for me, I would almost venture to say that I treat the animals that are going to be for food, maybe even better than the ones that are pets because I'm so thankful for, and so just, honored that they are going to bring sustenance. They're going to put food on the table for my family. And so that is not easy. That is a very hard tension. It is a, it's embracing um, a double-edged sword to love an animal and also need it for sustenance and choose to use them as a, a protein source. But for me, I think it generates higher than, uh, maybe higher than normal or higher than necessary husbandry practices and um, a higher level. I feel like my children respect animals more than some children that I have been exposed to that were, are not raised that way because they don't understand the impact on the food cycle and on our lives that animals have. That's super interesting. Beautifully said. I want to go back to something else that you um, mentioned when you first started talking about um, your role with non-typical outdoorsmen. You mentioned Mm -hmm. challenges. Um, I think you said when you entered into your husband's family. Mm -hmm. Do you, could you share more about that with us? Well, um, you know, I'm, this is the South and, um, there are still some, how do I put this delicately? I definitely experience some odd looks um, marrying into a solely Caucasian family. Um, they're the same looks that I experience from a child on because, you know, my father is Filipino. Um, but I was not raised by my father. So the rest of my siblings are all Caucasian. They're just all light skinned. And so I always stood out like the ugly duckling (laughs) or the beautiful duckling. (laughs) Exactly. As a child, I saw it in a negative light for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and it caused me to be the brunt of a lot of jokes. And it's like, where did you come from? You obviously don't fit in. And so what was interesting is, you know, I was raised Southern and I was raised in a family that is Caucasian. And so I felt like I was white. I felt like I was Caucasian and my skin betrayed me though. And so I constantly was facing um, just 
strange looks and whispering and, and, and things like that throughout my life. And then when I got married, um, there were some people that just did not think that that was a good fit or a good combination that maybe, uh, my husband should have married maybe someone, you know, blonde and blue eyed with fairer skin, maybe. <laughs> so, man, yeah, that sounds, I can't imagine. Um, it sounds really difficult, but I, I was very inspired by the way that you talked about feeling like, um, kind of a, a middleman, middlewoman, um, between two worlds and facilitating maybe a greater understanding um, yeah. of one side to the other. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, I kind of feel like I have a foot in, in both worlds and, and the, those experiences as a child and as a teenager, um, I believe that they also allow me to be very gracious and very understanding. Um, even as, you know, I have four children and two of my children are avid outdoorsmen and love to hunt. And then two of my children could take it or leave it. One can hunt, but especially my daughter, she started kind of, as she started forming her own personality around 10 or 11 years old, I just saw that this just wasn't her kind of thing. And so had she been born into a family where it was, you know, a completely Caucasian family that was all immersed in hunting and the outdoors life. I don't know if she would have been offered the same grace, but I was able to look at her and, and remind her daily, you know, you, I don't expect you to be like anyone. So for instance, at in 10th grade, she decided that she wanted to become a vegetarian and leading up to that, she already was very staunch about, she would not eat anything that we did not raise, but somewhere around 10th grade, she watched a few videos that were circulating and she just, that was it as much as she loved to eat and as much as she loved our farm raised bacon, I thought this will not last, but <laughs> we will give this a chance. Well, that was almost six years ago now, and she's still a vegetarian. Wow. But the way that I was able to handle that, she, instead of being combative or abrasive, or she is literally surrounded by a hunting and outdoors family and does not feel threatened by it. When she comes over, I make a non-meat option for her. And that's what, that's no big deal to me. That's my daughter. And I love her. I have no problem making that for her. And so it gave her the um, freedom to just become who she was. And now she does have her own little farm and she just recently bought a house and she has some chickens and some goats. And obviously they're just for pets, but you know, who knows? I think, you know, there's the possibility as time goes on that she, after looking at some research and looking at things, she may change her mind. She may not, but it doesn't matter. You know, that, I think that understanding goes a long way, not just with raising children, but also in introducing people from different, you know, different lifestyles into the outdoors. So that was a lot, that was really great practice. <laughs> what a wonderful mother you are. I just, I feel like, you know, whether it be eating meat or anything else, I feel like, um, someone that can foster, can create an environment of freedom for their kids to be the people that they want to be. I, I don't know. To me, that's the pinnacle of parenthood. So well done. 
Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so Florida is obviously a big vacation destination for a lot of the country, um, right. but I, I don't know that a lot of people hunt and fish and really experience the outdoors beyond, you know, five feet of sand um, in that state. So what would you, what do you wish other people knew about Florida? Well, I wish that they knew that the majority of the state is not beaches <laughs> or touristy destinations that we have. Um, we're, we're actually mostly scrub and woodland and, and swamp and <laughs> um, that, that makes up more of the state than the little bit that you see on the billboards as you're driving in. Um, I wish that people knew that we have over 6 million acres of wildlife management areas that there is all this beautiful seemingly untouched land there's just because of the the swamp and the the rough terrain and the mosquitoes and the vines and the snakes and the alligators there's a lot of florida that people don't venture into and it is a beautiful place if you take the necessary safety precautions and venture out it's just there's some there are some gorgeous places in florida yeah absolutely and a lot of really cool i mean a lot of um i hate the wildlife biologist in me doesn't like to use the word habitat that's not in context with a specific species because habitat is species dependent but having said that uh there's a lot of really wonderful and well-managed wildlife habitat in Florida and some really cool research on quail and fire adapted systems. Um, nice. yeah, a lot of really cool stuff that, like you said, you don't see on the billboards. Absolutely. Yeah. That's probably the biggest thing that I would, I wish that we could push more about what the, what real Florida is like. It sounds like a new sticker. No more salt life. Yeah. Hashtag real, yeah. real Florida. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Uh, can you tell us a story about one of your favorite moments in the field or on the water? Right. So, um, as a parent, my favorite story was the first time that my son, who is actually the son that is not as um, doesn't has have as much of a propensity for the outdoors, he he can and he can do it, the hunting and the fishing and all that, but he doesn't love it like my other two boys. But when he was growing up, he had kind of a strong personality too, which he's only 15 now, but as a child. And so, um, my personality absorbed what buffered his personality better than his dad's did. So let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's diplomatic description. So, yes. Yeah, so what that means is that as we went out in the outdoors and were hunting and he usually ended up in the tree stand with me. And so I spent a lot of time with him. Um, a lot of it was him sleeping, but still <laughs> we had some good conversations. And so the first day that he sat alone and hunted and harvested his first buck is my favorite memory because I will never forget walking up on him and the look on his face because he was so shocked that he actually did it without anyone there and then how excited he was to tell the story. And then I helped him drag the buck out. And um, I mean, his, his dad and his uncle did too, but I got to be there and help him. And that 
is really what has launched me as my children have gotten older and are moving out and doing their own thing and don't need me as much anymore. And I've got a kind of this gap before my grandchildren are old enough to kind of start stepping into those same shoes. That is really what has launched me into wanting to be a certified hunter safety instructor and be a hunt master for, you know, the youth hunting program of Florida, because that was such an addicting, um, I just, I want to experience that again and again, just that look on his face and the excitement and the appreciation and just, just all of that. It was so great. I think that's part of what's launched me into volunteering and, and taking anyone I can think of hunting and, and just letting them experience that. And maybe what's led you to become an Artemis ambassador. Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's, I've never, um, I don't think I've ever taken somebody on their first hunting experience, but the more I hear, I mean, I guess my daughter, but she's a baby mm-hmm. still. Um, yeah. The more I hear people talk about that, it sounds like a really uh, powerful experience. It is. It's well, you know, you're transferring power to someone. It's like this. I don't know if that's the right, it, but that's what it feels like. It feels like you're taking a confidence and, and, and wisdom and knowledge that, that you've, um, accumulated and it feels like you're transferring some of that to someone else and you're seeing it empower them. Um, for instance, I, I helped teach a hunter safety field day this past weekend for a group of 17. Two of them were professors and the other 15 were students and they're graduating from UF and they're going into um, careers that are, you know, outdoor careers, but none of them had have ever hunted. And so through Delta waterfowl, they're going to be going to the same place to, uh, hunt waterfowl. And so all but three of them had never even held a firearm. And so we were work, working through just simple cycling the shells and, you know, keeping your finger out of the trigger and working the safety and all that. And I spent about 15 minutes with each one of them and some of them, their hands were literally shaking because they were so nervous But then there were a couple of them that did surprisingly well when it came time to shoot a few of the target clays. And then the way they would turn, it's almost like when the only way I can explain it is like when my boys were playing sports or, you know, my daughter was more academic. She did, you know, uh, honor society and things like that. But whenever they look for you in the crowd (laughs) and, and, and make eye contact, like, did you see that? That happened with a couple of those students, and it is just exhilarating because there, there does, there no words are even needed. It's just this unspoken, un. It's just like you got to be a part of that, and they looked for you because you put an indelible mark on their life, and for the rest of their life, they're going to remember you because of that. That short few moments that you transferred some of your wisdom and empowered them. And it's just, it's a really great feeling. Wow. Yeah. That, it sounds even more amazing after you (laughs) describe it. Um, Very cool. Very cool. So I think now we can transition to our weekly closer, which is hits and misses. Uh, So what is something that you've been aiming for and how did it go? Well, I have been aiming for planning and executing my first outreach event 
uh, in two arenas, both with Artemis and with non-typical outdoorsmen. So this weekend, I will have completed one checkbox with non-typical outdoorsmen and completed my first event with them. And then I finally nailed down the details of a waterfowl hunt that I will be planning and conducting at the end of January for Artemis. So I'm really excited because I've been pulling these pieces together and finally they're falling into place and we have a date and we have a location. And so I'm just waiting for a couple more details. But so those are definitely both, uh, big hits for me. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's super exciting. Well, our listeners, this this episode will air, uh, I believe, in October, early October. So plenty of time to register, to watch for that duck hunt and register for it. Awesome. Great. Super exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess I have a, a hit. I, well, my shotgun broke twice on me, actually, most recently on a dove hunt. And in the course of that and some other conversations, my husband and I agreed that I should upgrade to a new shotgun. Um, so I just got my new gun in yesterday. Um, it's a Franke Affinity Catalyst. So it's a gun made for women. It's a women's gun. Um, yes. And I'm beyond excited to see how much better it fits me and how much my shooting improves as a result. Um, it's also a 20 gauge. I was shooting a 12 gauge, so it's significantly lighter. And especially for upland hunting, I'm looking forward to that. That's so interesting that you would say that because I recently switched to a 20 gauge Franke as well, because, um, you know, standing in a duck blind, a 12 gauge was not as menacing, but as I've gotten fallen in love more and more with quail and snipe hunting and you're walking and I, I did the same thing. I upgraded. So we'll, hopefully we'll both have, maybe we'll have a review about Franke 20 gauges. Yeah. After <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're not sponsored, but, um, I yeah. do, <laughs> when I find something that I really like, I do like to talk about it because that's right. the kind of information I'm hungry for, um, and can be hard to come by like we were talking about earlier. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. And I had a, a number of conversations before making the switch, you know, cause my husband was like, well, are you going to feel, are you going to feel like every time you miss a duck, it's because you're shooting a 20 gauge and not a 12 gauge. Mm. And I was like, no, I think I'm going to have a lot more confidence knowing that this gun was made to fit me. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to be able to, yeah. So, and from what I understand, I'm not an expert on ballistics, but from what I understand, a three inch shell in a 20 gauge is really not very different than shooting a 12 gauge. No, it's sufficient. Uh, I mean, and you know, there, there, some would argue that the 20 gauge actually kicks a little more because it's yes. not as heavy. So, Hey, you yeah. Know. Yeah. I've uh, this, yeah. I thought about getting one that was gas to try mm. to mitigate some of that, but we had a price cap. So <laughs> yes, that's a, an increasing problem as of late. So. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it was really hard to find this gun. They haven't, apparently they haven't shipped any out for the last year. So we had to call around. I mean, there's, there's a whole story behind how we even found it, but, um, anyway, this is a lot of hype for a gun that I haven't even assembled yet, yeah. um, but hopefully, hopefully it works out well. So yeah. Thank you, Tiffany, so much. This was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you and um, I appreciate you being on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited about continuing to do work with Artemis. And um, I really I really believe in Artemis' mission. So, Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's folks like you that make it happen. So really, 
Thank you for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope that you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.